appreciate our worship arts ministry team so much. Um, choir, orchestra, our tech team, Pastor Rick, music, all just, will you say thank you to them? Week after week, they help me in a beautiful way think about the things of God and His His desire for my life and help me think about my life and how much I need God in it. And I, I just appreciate them so much. Solomon said, where there is no vision, the people perish. And I began a two-part message last week on disciples making disciples out of the vision that God has given me for this season in my life and in ministry here at First Baptist Church. I appreciate so much Becky Smith sharing that testimony about connect groups. Uh, she lives that, not just uh, a word from her. That's uh, something she's passionate about and speaks so eloquently about and I appreciate that part when she mentioned you know the white hair and as you begin to look at that season of your life you realize you're closer to the end than you are the beginning and who are you going to pass the baton to and and it's all about disciples you and I making disciples because that's the way we pass the baton and that's that's what God has just impressed upon my heart so much in this season of my life. In fact, I'll go so far as to say that discipleship, and Cole, I thank you so much for your leadership as uh, discipleship pastor. Uh, this is a lot of responsibility I'm going to put on you right now because I believe with all of my heart that discipleship is the key to all the challenges and all the problems our church faces today. When I say our church, I'm, I'm talking about First Baptist Church specifically, and then God's church in the world, uh, you know, universally. When baptisms are down, we baptized 47 last year. I, I, and I praise God for every single one of them and every single person who led one of those 47 individuals to the Lord Jesus Christ. But a church our size ought to baptize over 100. I'm just being honest with you. When, when baptisms are down, discipleship is the answer because when a believer is truly discipled, they become a disciple who shares their faith with lost people. And when lost people hear the gospel, some are saved. When worship attendance is down, and yes, our worship attendance is flat. It's not growing like it ought to be. And I've, I've learned something the last couple of months, read several articles on this, and, and this is talking about the church in the United States. But when you look at worship attendance numbers going down, the, the first assumption, most logical assumption, at least for me, my thinking is, oh, fewer people are coming to church. Well, that's not the truth. It, uh, in fact, we have more churches today than we did 10 years ago. The problem is, more of us that come to church are coming less often. Now, how sad and how dangerous is that? Discipleship is the answer when worship numbers are going down because when a disciple is truly discipled, they won't come to worship out of sense of ought to. Listen, I don't want you coming because I preached a sermon saying you ought to be in worship. 
I want you coming because you know the gospel and that Jesus saved you for your sins. And you think, hallelujah, I, with joy, I want to go. This is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in him. Uh, you know, I am going to come in his house with worship and, and singing and praise because, I, you know, I want to. Out of joy, he loved me and I want to go and love him back. And, and that happens in discipleship as a, a, a person who is not a believer, becomes a believer, they want to come to worship. And as an immature believer becomes a more mature believer, they want to come to worship. And and discipleship is the key for both of those. Uh, Listen, when generosity and giving is down, discipleship is the key. Now, I'm very thankful. Every single week, I, I make sure, I try the best I can, that whoever's leading the offering, whether it's me or someone else, or we have a lay person that comes up here and, and helps us in that offertory prayer time, we are faithful in saying thank you for your generosity. And I mean that from the bottom of my heart. Uh, this last year, we, we had a $600,000 goal for missions. We didn't make our goal, but we gave about 40000 more than we did last year. That's good. I'm thankful for that. Um, we have a debt on our first kids building. We knew going in that we would, and we we would have a couple of campaigns to pay for that. Our our giving to uh, settle that debt is on track from your pledges, and I appreciate that. Uh, But our our giving, our our regular giving is flat this year, a little bit under what what we should have given. And and we're in a prosperous time. I I know the stock market in the last couple of months uh, didn't do great, but my goodness, our we're in a, a prosperous time here in, in a very prosperous pocket of our prosperous nation. And those of you who know the stats know for Scythe County, North Atlanta Burbs, we rank up there. And, and so, again, I don't want you giving because there's a sense of ought to. I want you to have the joy of giving. And that joy comes as we are discipled. And we learn that there is joy in giving. There is joy in generosity. And you will experience that joy when you give out of that uh, growing discipleship. Uh, When a number of, you you know, when I see service and volunteering going down. And and our church, I mean, when I think of Vacation Bible School and the number of adults and teenagers that come for a whole week during the summer, giving up their time. Uh, I, I am so thankful for that. But we could do so much more. And again, I don't want you volunteering for this job or that job that the staff asks you to do out of a sense of ought to. I want you to do it out of a sense of joy. And that joy comes through discipleship as you learn First of all, Jesus' example of serving sets the bar for all of us. He didn't ask us to do something that he wasn't doing himself. And so across the board, every challenge that our church faces will be answered by discipleship, by better discipleship, deeper discipleship. So last week I opened up this study 
in 2 Timothy chapter 2. I gave you 14 words to understand how we can better disciple making disciples. We covered the first seven, and we're going to cover the second seven today. I also want us to incorporate, as you think about each one of these words last week and this week, I want you to incorporate our church motto. Our church motto is this, the church that gives itself away. Because that is the way disciples make disciples, by giving themselves away. Jesus gave himself away so that our sins could be forgiven. For you to lead someone who doesn't know Jesus to faith in Christ, you've got to give yourself away to that individual in a relationship and sharing the gospel. And they then step across that line into belief because of God's grace and and God's love and God's mercy. And then for us to mature as disciples, we give ourselves away. We, we sacrifice our will, our want to, and do what God wants us to, and we grow in our faith. And so disciples making disciples, coupled with our motto, the church that gives itself away, goes something like this. We want to be, this is our vision, disciples who make disciples by giving ourselves away. So I want you to say that with me this morning. We want to be disciples who make disciples by giving ourselves away. Again, disciples who make disciples by giving ourselves away. One more time this morning. Disciples who make disciples by giving ourselves away. Jesus was the perfect example of giving himself away. And this principle, you already know, it's nothing new. We're just connecting it to our faith. Parents give themselves away to raise their children, do they not? You surrender what you would like to do if you didn't have children, how you'd spend your money if you didn't have children. I mean, what parent hadn't thought about that from time to time? Oh, well, look what I could do if I didn't have to buy another pair of shoes, if I didn't have to educate my child. But what do we do? Willingly, we surrender our will and our resources in the joy of parenting a child. Uh, Employees surrender their their time, their skill set to work for a company. Players surrender their will, their game plan for the coach's game plan for the, the, the benefit of the team. Soldiers and sailors and guardsmen and reservists. All surrender their comforts, their time, even their family time to keep the peace in peacetime and to secure the peace in times of conflict and and war, giving ourselves away with that vision of disciples making disciples. Jesus taught us by his own example, Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to the even to death on a cross. Jesus lived it out perfectly. He came to the world, leaving heaven, giving himself away. And when he healed the woman who simply touched his garment, what did Jesus say? Who touched me? And why did he say that? I mean, it was a hem of his garment. He didn't say it because he felt her, you know, brush against him. He said that because he felt the power going out of himself. He gave himself away to heal that woman who was, was ill. When he discipled the 12 disciples, he did it by giving them three years, the last three years of his life. 
And he gave himself away to all of us by dying on the cross for the forgiveness of our sin. So that same principle and that example is where I want us to, to finish up today. But I want us to carry this vision throughout the year. So word number eight, we covered the first seven last week. Word number eight is commune. I want us to understand communion with the first disciple maker. The scripture says, consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. So Jesus, as we've already talked about, is the first disciple maker. He chose 12 men. He taught them. He shared his life with them. They ate meals together. They traveled together. They laughed together. They cried together. They watched him teach. As, as Becky said this morning, when he prayed, they said, oh, my goodness. Teach us how to do that. They saw Jesus, and, and they wanted him to teach. They watched him relate to a variety of people, young, old, poor, rich, educated, uneducated, working class, royalty, God-fearing men and women and religious leaders and those who, who were opposed to God. They watched him proclaim the gospel and die for the gospel. And Jesus gave them assignments. He sent out 72 disciples, and they went out witnessing. And then what did they do? They came back, and Jesus debriefed with them about the trip, about their mission. All of this to say that when it comes to making disciples, Jesus is our example. He is our teacher, and we need to spend time with him. And that's where the word commune comes with. Last week, I talked to you about a 21-day challenge. I urged you to take that challenge of spending time with Jesus every day for 21 consecutive days. I gave you a list of Scripture verses that you could use to guide you along the way. At 9.30, I asked about this, and I don't think I did a very good job of it uh, because I think some people thought, well, if I've been doing this for a long time, he's not talking to me. So I'm talking to everyone who is involved in personal worship, not just because you started the challenge, but it might include those of you who hadn't been do it, and, and sometime this week you began that challenge. doesn't mean that you use the Scripture verses that, that I put on the web. You, you may have a, a devotional book and journal that you're walking through right now. I, I'm not talking about doing it my way. I'm talking about 21 days. How many of you right now are involved in that challenge to work personal worship for 21 days let me say amen and thank you and there's not near enough hands all right i, I mean when a preacher asks a question like that and you have this moment I, i'd be disingenuous if i just went on blew it off all of us need to be a part of this i, I said the word ought let me take that away i don't want you jumping on this challenge because you ought to I want you jumping on this challenge because when you do it, you're going to find that it brings joy and it brings blessing and benefit to your life and to all those around you. You'll be a better spouse. You'll be a better parent, a better child. You'll be a better friend, a better employee. The people that rub shoulders with you are going to notice it, even if they don't know where it's coming from. Of course, that's your opportunity to tell them where it's coming from for us to be disciples who make disciples we need to commune with the first disciple maker we need to spend more time with jesus the next word is remember in verses eight and nine 
keep your attention on Jesus Christ as risen from the dead and descended from David. This is according to my gospel. I suffer for it to the point of being bound like a criminal, but God's message is not bound. Believers will suffer. You may not hear that from every pulpit. You won't hear it from the prosperity gospel people. But it's true. I mean, think about Jesus. He was sinless, the perfect son of God. God sent him on a mission. He came to Bethlehem as a child, and he started eating with a silver spoon from the first day of his life. And it was just a bed of roses until he just, you know, just wonderfully was taken up by God to the throne. Right? No. Jesus suffered. And he was perfectly doing the will of God. It would be a lie for me to say, believe and everything will be wonderful. No, you will suffer. You'll have challenges. You'll have trials. I I will admit, some of those come about because of your own sinful decisions, right? But some of them will will come about because we live in a broken world and we have a real enemy. His name is Satan. He has minions on this earth and they will attack us. So how do we remain disciples who make disciples in the midst of, (coughs) excuse me, in the midst of suffering and bad consequences? We do it by remembering the gospel. We, we do it by remembering that even though our circumstances aren't the best right now, the gospel is not fettered by our chains. Uh, think about Paul and Silas. They're in a prison. They're locked up. They're in chains, right? And so the gospel stopped because the greatest missionary in the world is in prison, correct? Not on your life. You know better than that. No, Paul and Silas are in prison, bound up, and they're singing praises to God. And guess what happens? The other prisoners hear the gospel. And some of them come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, when you are going through circumstances, remember the gospel is still alive and well, and you can be part of, that, you can be part of it as you continue this calling of being a disciple who makes disciples by giving yourself away. The tenth word is endure. Endure for the next generation. Look at verse 10. This is why I endure all things for the elect so that they also may obtain salvation, which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul told Timothy to endure. He told him to press on. He told him to run the race. He told him to fight the good fight because his faithfulness would be part of God's plan to bring salvation to others. Again, this is not a popular sentiment among a lot of religious circles today. Too many people today, you know, they're, they're so quick to ask, why does God allow good people to suffer when I'm serving Him? Can you imagine Jesus saying, I know people need to be saved, but I don't think it's fair that I should die for them. Jesus didn't say that. He, he didn't say, they don't deserve salvation. Why should I die for them? No, he looked down there and said, they don't deserve it, and there's no way they can get it themselves. 
but I still love them enough that I am going to endure the cross for their salvation. You know, John 17 is one of my favorite verses because in John 17, Jesus Christ prays for Bob Jolly. It's right there in the Bible. In John, you look it up. In John 17, Jesus prays for Pastor Bob Jolly. Yes. You know, he prays for his disciples, the 12 that he'd chosen. This is before the cross. And then he, he prays to the Father for all of those who will, that's future, believe. I believe in him today. In 2019, Jesus was praying for me then. I love that passage. He's calling for me to endure. He's calling for me just as he endured for people who would follow him. You and I are to endure for the next generation. And you know, I, I, everyone in this room that's my age or older, uh, let me ask you this. How much thought are you giving to what God might ask you to endure for the next generation? Now I'm going to stop preaching for a minute and I'm going to meddle. All right? How many of you are giving thought to what preferences you might have to give up for the next generation. I like church to be like this, and you describe whatever it is that you like church to be like, okay? I mean, include everything. Whether it has a steeple on the front or not, whether it has stained glass windows or not, whether it has pews or chairs or not, whether it has red carpet or blue carpet or pink carpet, it doesn't matter. I mean, I'm color challenged, so I don't guess it matters to me. But uh, wh whether it has a choir, an orchestra, or uh, a worship team. I want you to think about all of your preferences right now. But, you know, when I think of church, this is what I want. What time of day it worships. Are you willing to give up your preferences for the next generation? Or are you so stuck on what you want church to look like that the next generation will never get connected? Oh, let me tell you, I have a Facebook profile. I've read some posts of believers. And sometimes I want to say, really? You are so stuck on that preference that you're willing to offend and, and just discount the next generation? What kind of preferences are you willing to give up? That's part of enduring for the next generation. Just asking. The 11th uh, word is bank on the truth. Look at verse 11. This saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. What good news is that? For he cannot deny himself. Another way of looking at enduring for the next generation is to think of it in terms of a positive word, and that is investing. 
And so the word is bank. Bank on the truth. Disciple making is all about investing. We take all that God has given us, time, energy, knowledge, experience, background, understanding, wisdom, financial resources. We take, and hasn't God, say amen to this if, if, if you think it's the truth. God has given us in Forsyth County a whole lot of stuff. Amen. All right, so it's taking those gifts from God and investing it in those who are not yet believers or investing it in immature believers so that they be, can become mature believers. God's still working with me on this. I, I remember as a, a, a younger pastor, something that I've dealt with all of, of my life, sitting in the office trying to, to think about how the church can be a more effective impacting the, the community and, and uh, you know, over and over and over again, I just, well, man, if this person with those resources would give more and be more involved, if, if that person who is uh, not very mature would just grow up and stop acting like a baby, if, if that person would, would just learn more about God's Word so he'd be a more effective teacher, you know, a lot of times I just I focus on those who are immature and I think, man, you know, we'd be much better church if they were much better believers. Rather than, all right, God, you've given me a lot. I'm going to invest what you've given to help those individuals grow and mature and become a disciple who makes disciple. So don't look at this process just as things you've got to give up. Look at it as, as things that you do, things you invest for the next generation and for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul said, die. Paul said, endure. Paul said, deny and you'll be denied. And Paul said, remain faithful. And, and use that investment. Let God use that investment and multiply it. Word number 12 is avoid. Talking about avoiding sin. Beginning with verse 14, remind them of these things, charging them before God not to fight about words. This is in no way profitable, and it leads to the ruin of hearers. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who doesn't need to be ashamed, correctly teaching the word of truth. But avoid irreverent, empty speech, for this will produce an even greater measure of godlessness, and their word will spread like gangrene. Hymenaeus and Philetus are among them. They have deviated from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place and are overturning the faith of some. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm. Having this inscription, the Lord knows those who are His, and everyone who names the name of the Lord must turn away from unrighteousness. Sin separates us from God. We think about that usually in terms of it separates the non-believer from God. But sin separates all of us from God. It's separated from, and separated from God, we will find it impossible to become disciple-making disciples. And so God calls us to, to ask His forgiveness and, and to seek His forgiveness and, and to live as that forgiven person being a disciple who makes disciples. He outlines some of the sins that you and I need to avoid. 
quarrelsome spirit in verse 14. Laziness in verse 15. Irreverent talk in verse 16. Lying in verse 18. Provoking unbelief. Now, this list is not exhaustive. So if you go through this list and you check them all out and say, no problem there, no problem there, and you get through all of them, great. I am so thankful for you. I need you on my team. But then I also need you to look in your heart and see what sin is separating you from God. Because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Every one of us are in that same boat. All of us have sin. We need to ask God's forgiveness for. So spend some time with God. Say, Father, what is it that I'm doing that's separating me from you? Now, what do you do with those sins when he reveals them to you? Maybe it's one that's listed. It's as obvious as can be. You read that and you say, oh, my goodness, that's me. Or you got through those, but God laid another one on your heart. What do you do with it? You admit it. You turn from it. You ask forgiveness for it. And then you remember the gospel. Jesus has already died for every one of those sins. And the scripture says he stands ready because he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Did you did you hear that? All unrighteousness, all your sins in the past, all your sins in the present, even all your sins in the future. God stands ready to forgive. He's already paid the price for it. And you can find that forgiveness. To be a disciple making disciples, we need to avoid sin. And we, and we need to ask God's forgiveness for the sin in our life. Number 13 is the word prepare. Verse 20. Now in a large house, there are not only gold and silver bowls, but there are wood and clay. Some for honorable use, some for dishonorable So if anyone purifies himself from anything dishonorable, he will be a special instrument set apart, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Flee from youthful passions. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, doing what those who call on the Lord, doing it with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Last week, we talked about the word focus, and this is very similar here as well. Remember, uh, a soldier doesn't concern himself with the things of civilian life. He's focused on the battle. Well, we are in a battle for souls, and Satan wants everyone out there to be deceived. He wants the unbeliever to be deceived and thinking he doesn't need God, and he wants the believer being deceived and thinking he doesn't need to be out there as a disciple-making disciple. We're in a battle, and to prepare for this battle, Paul outlines some things that we can do to get ready. In verse 21, he says, purify yourself. We've talked about that, confession and forgiveness. In verse 21, he talks about serving the master. From time to time, someone comes to the office, they call me, see me in the hallway at church and say, Pastor, I think God has laid something big on me to do. I just don't know what it is next. And And every once in a while, that comes from someone who's doing nothing now. And and they want to start doing something big. Well, think of the the parable of the talents. Those who are faithful in the small things, God will give bigger responsibility. So how does this relate to us in disciple-making disciple? Do now what you already know God is calling you to do. 
pray. Read your Bible. Go to worship. Do personal worship daily. If you're not doing those things, don't ask God to give you a big assignment. You're not doing the small things He already is calling you to do for your own benefit. So you, you and I need to serve the Master, doing what we already know to do. Uh, verse 22, flee from immature pursuits. In other words, replace bad habits with some good habits. Evaluate your life. What is getting in the way of you serving God like you ought to? If it's getting in the way of you serving God like you, like you should, then it's a bad habit. Get rid of that. And don't just clean out your life. Add to it godly things, things God wants you to do. Put those positive habits in place. And then it says pursue the things of God, like righteousness. Who's our righteousness? Who's our right? Who can we stand before God with Jesus, His righteousness, not ours? Well, Paul said, pursue righteousness. In other words, pursue Jesus. Pursue His heart. Not only pursue righteousness, but pursue faith. Pursue love. Pursue peace. How do we love? Love is doing what is best for the object of our love. So intentionally, are we doing things that are good for those that we love? And in peace, listen, pursuing peace doesn't mean we go off to some deserted island where there is no conflict. No, pursuing peace means that we go to the conflict and we pursue peace among those who are warring with each other. Paul said, these are the things that you need to do to prepare for service. And then he closes that section with serve with others. God doesn't intend, intend on us doing this alone. We need the strength of each other. As Becky said, we all come to the table, the connect group, the church with different gifts. Bring your gift and work with others for God's will. Disciples making disciples. The last word is hope. Look at verse 24. The Lord's slave must not quarrel, but may, must be gentle to everyone, able to teach and patient, instructing his opponents with gentleness. And perhaps God will grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth. Then they may come to their senses and escape the devil's trap, having been captured by him to do his will. You know, I, I could have listed gentleness there, and certainly God wants us to be gracious in our efforts of disciples making disciples. But the phrase that captured my heart this week as I was putting the final touches to this was this phrase, perhaps God will grant them repentance. That's my hope. With everyone that I share the gospel with, I have this hope. Perhaps God will grant them repentance. Now, some will come to Jesus and they'll cross that line from non-believer to believer. That's my hope. That is our hope as a church. I hope that is your hope individually. That was the hope of Paul when he was discipling Timothy. Timothy, you do all of these things that I'm mentoring you and, and instructing you to do. And perhaps someone will come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You know, as you disciple... Keep this great hope in your mind. Not everyone is going to follow. Not everyone's going to accept Christ. But if you keep your hope on that, that some will, you will endure. You will prepare. You will avoid sin. You will give up what 
what you want to do, your will for God's will in the hope that someone will come to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. So last week I, I closed with three questions. Number one, the first question was this. Out of the seven words I went over this morning, what one word is God laying on your heart right now? Of the seven this week, circle that, write it down, keep it in your mind, think about it. What one word? Second question is, why do you think God brought that word to your heart today, this morning? Some of you will know instantly. Others, you may have to pray about that for a season. And then finally, in light of that word and why God dropped it on my heart, what is my next step of discipleship? What am I going to do? Now I want to add two more this morning before we go. Who is discipling you? And who are you discipling?